Let him who hath understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, of a man. His number is six hundred and sixty-six. Revelation thirteen eighteen. That is one of the most culturally used, referenced verses in Western civilization. If you Google how many songs use the the number six hundred sixty-six you come up with at least 1,868 different songs. 15 artists use it in their name, and 33 albums use it in their name. This is one of those things that's everywhere. Everybody likes to use it. It's kind of it's spooky, right? Like you, you go to you know, any old buildings or, or under bridges, and what do you see? Number 666 posted up there. Uh, one of my favorite bands growing up was Iron Maiden, and they have a song called The Number of the Beast. And remarkably, it took me a long time to actually look up and, and, and study what, what this meant. And I bet it's not what you think it is. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're in Revelation 13. We're going to be talking about this verse and all the ones that surround it as we continue on in our study of Revelation. Let's do this thing. So, Revelation 13, uh, we are in the middle of this, this part of Revelation called the war story. And we've basically been looking at how the war between God and evil, Satan, being led by Satan, and his followers started. We looked at that last week. We looked at how he lost the, the, the war in heaven and how his like second career has kind of started here on earth. Um, and so today we're just going to get through all of Revelation 13. It's going to be really interesting uh, as far as how Satan has transitioned uh, away from an all-out open war to more of like a guerrilla tactics kind of war and how he's using humanity against itself. That's, that's essentially what we look at today. So Revelation 13, let's read it and then break it down. Starting in verse 1, it says, Then I saw a monster coming up out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads. Each of the ten horns was wearing a coronet. A crown, and a blasphemous names were written on the on the heads. The monster I saw was like a leopard with bear's feet and a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave the monster its power and its throne and great authority. One of the heads appeared to have been killed and have been slaughtered and killed, but its fatal wound had been healed. The whole earth was awed and astonished by the monster and worshipped by the dragon because it had given the monster its authority. They worshipped the monster too. Who is like the monster, they were saying? Who can fight against it? And the monster was given a mouth that speaks great blasphemous words and was given authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, to curse his name and his dwelling place, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was granted the right to make war against God's holy people and defeat them, and it was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. So everyone who lived on the earth worshipped it, everyone that is, those whose name had not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life belonging to the Lamb who was slaughtered. If anyone has ears, let them hear. If anyone is taken to be captive into captivity, they will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with the sword they will be killed. This is a summons for God's holy people to be patient and have faith. Then I saw another monster coming up from the earth. It had two horns like those of the lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It acts in the presence of the first monster and with its full authority, and it makes the earth and those who live on it worship the first monster whose fatal wound had been healed. 
It performs great signs so that it makes even fire come down from heaven on the earth inside of people. And it deceives the people who live on earth by signs which had been allowed to perform in front of the monster, instructing the earth's inhabitants to make an image of the monster who had the sword wound but was alive. It was allowed to give breath to the monster's image so that the monster's image could speak and it could kill anyone who didn't worship the monster's image. It makes everyone great and small, rich and poor, free and slaves receive a sign from it, marked on their right hands and on their foreheads, so that nobody can buy or sell unless they have the mark of the name of the monster or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Anyone who has a good head on their shoulder should work out this monster's number, because it's the number of a human being. Its number is 666. So, Let's state this before we start breaking it down. This is just a reminder from last week. This is a parable. A parable is a story that has a deeper meaning. The characters in it, the places in it, the things that happen within it, they have more to them than what's on surface value. This isn't just a story uh, about a dragon, right? It's kind of like the the joke in that show Parks and Rec where Ron Swanson is very literal in everything that he reads. If you're not familiar with the show, you you won't pick up on this reference at all, but I love that show. Um, But Ron Swanson is a character in it who takes things very literally, and he was on and on about how um, Herman Melville's book Moby Dick was just a good book about a a guy hunting a whale. There was nothing more to it. And at the end of the episode, he's kind of like, is it? Is it something more to this? Because, you know, if you're unfamiliar, you know, Moby Dick is one of the greatest allegories in, 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 in all of literature. A parable has a deeper meaning. There's more to it than just what's on the surface. So this is not just about a literal monster. It's not just about a literal dragon, a literal beast. It has a deeper meaning. And this is one of those sections, especially in Revelation, that context is king and you can't get the truth unless you know the context here. I mean, that's just the bottom line. You really, really can't. We like to, to, to hold on to the truth that the, the books in the Bible were written for us. And they were. Like, I'm not dis- disagreeing with that at all. But they were written in a real time, in a real place, to actual people then and there. Speaking to them in ways that they would understand that 2,000 years later, speaking completely different, speaking in a completely different culture, we might miss And this is one where there's a ton of things that when we look at, we look at, okay, we can document this was happening. We can document this is what people were thinking. We can document this is the way things were. And it lines up exactly with this. We really can't ignore that just because it makes sense in our world. So what is this, right? So the the beast and the dragon, who are they? Right? We, we looked at the dragon or the serpent. That's, that's Satan. We looked at him last week, and John explicitly tells us this is Satan. And Satan, is, he's been kicked out of heaven. The, the angels, his followers, have, have been kicked out of heaven too. They're here on the earth. And at the end of chapter 12, he goes to wage war on those who worship God, those, the offspring of this woman uh, who birthed the Messiah, right? So Christians, he's off to wage war on the people of God. He's trying to ruin everything because he knows his time is short. That's, that's kind of what we wrapped up with last week. And when it ends with him standing on the sea, standing on the edge of the sea, because the sea is chaos. And so he's looking into chaos, and he's going to call something forth from it. He's going to call out the beast, and the beast, there, there's, there's some 
there's an argument to be made that the beast is is the the son of the dragon, right? So he looks at it and he sees his reflection in the ocean and and somehow he creates life from that. He doesn't create anything, but he manifests life out of it. You can make that argument. But regardless, the beast is something that he is manipulating and he is using to accomplish on its own ends. The beast is just a mini version of the dragon. I mean, they have a lot of similarities. Seven heads, uh, ten, ten horns. Um, they're, they're wearing crowns. You know, they're, they're, they have the same attributes. They are multifaceted. They have many different faces, take many different forms. They're pretending to be rulers. They're pretending to be leaders of armies. And then we see the differences. The beast, he is a direct, I don't know what you call it, a ripoff of Daniel's vision in chapter 7. So if you read the Old Testament book of Daniel, you'll see a very famous vision he has about, you know, the, these beasts that come about. And you have, you know, the, the leopard and you have the bear and you have the lion. And, and we look at them and it's pretty widely accepted both by ancient commentators and modern ones that the first three beasts in Daniel represented the Babylonian Empire, the Median Empire, and the Persian Empire, and while the fourth was is generally accepted to be Alexander the Great, and the ten horns represent the ten rulers who succeeded Alexander. And the last of these, the little one, in Daniel's vision, represented Antiochus Epiphanes who sacked Jerusalem. He destroyed Jerusalem and set up an altar of Zeus in the temple. He was the desolation who causes abomination, as if you've been referenced by that, if you can make that reference in other parts of the scriptures. And so we see that he's not these four separate beasts. The, 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 the beast itself is, is a combination of them. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that he is evil. He is simply the minion, the many Satan. Right? He is there, he has many faces, he has many versions of himself, but he is at his core a mini version of the devil, and he is empire. I mean, I, I really think that's what John is going for here. I think that's what Jesus is going for here, to communicate that empire is a pawn of Satan. Now that you, you can step back and say, okay, wait, I thought God controlled uh, the flow, the ebb and flow of, of, of the world as, as far as political nations, like as they grow, like God allowed Alexander the Great to do what he did. God allowed the Persians to do what he did. You know, you read back and you're like, hey, God allowed, um, allowed the different empires to come in and end the northern tribes and then end the southern tribes because they broke their covenant with God. He used them. Yeah. But God doesn't delight in death and destruction his heart breaks for people who suffer. We see that also throughout those same scriptures. What this is, is empire is a tool of the devil that he uses, but God will ultimately make work out for God's good. It's a fine-tooth comb you have to use here to, to figure this out. But it's really, that's, that's ultimately is what, what's happening with empire. Because what is empire? The definition of empire is a, a, a government, a nation, a political body uh, that expands, that, that chooses to subvert other nations. It's one of the oldest forms of government. Why, why is it so popular? Because it, the easiest way to gain resources, to gain territory, is to take it from your neighbors, to impose your will, to impose what you want on 
peoples that are weaker than you, that can't defend themselves from you. That is empire. That is the exact opposite of what God stands for, of what God's design is. And so we see this beast come out of chaos, come out of the sea, and he comes onto the land. And we see even some more things about him that, that gives us more clues as to, as to how Jesus feels about empire. We see that it has blasphemous names written on its forehead. It has... Uh, I think what John and Jesus are trying to communicate is that it's the opposite of Jesus, right? On one hand, Jesus is all about peace and, and unity and, and love. And empire is about power and destruction and taking and consuming the blasphemous names, those blasphemous words are opposite of Jesus as, as the, the word of God. Jesus is the word. John said that in the very beginning of his gospel. The word was with God and the word was God and there, there was no darkness, right? So we see that he's opposite. And even in the original Greek, the word beast is therion, okay? The word for lamb that is counterbalanced it in the sentences is arnion. They rhyme. I think John is trying to communicate that empire is, is the, the opposite of what Christ is. That empire is about destruction and that Jesus is about salvation. And so the dragon gives the, the beast authority. It gives him power. It gives him the ability to carry out Satan's directives. Now, does that mean that behind every every throne of empire in history that Satan has been there saying, hey, do this, and like the, the emperors have all been like, oh, cool, and they're like secretly in cahoots with the devil? Like, I don't think so. I think they're pawns and they don't realize it. But one thing we have to look at here is we have to look at the situation of first century Rome, right? The people who were getting this letter, this revelation and it was written. You had an empire the world had never seen before. Right? Let me put into context for you how different Rome was. Rome conquered all of the Mediterranean. Now you might be like, oh, that's not that much land territory. But when you encapsulate that region at that time in history... You had most of the world's commerce in your hands. Northern Europe was not developed. Africa was not developed. The Americas were not developed. The only other place that rivaled it was India and China. And those two places really traded with Rome, especially India. Rome was a force that the world had never truly seen. The reason Rome fell apart was because it was too big. Let that sink in. It wasn't because there was a bigger, badder enemy. It was because it was too big to manage itself. It ate itself. Rome was a beast the world has never seen. And it went through and it dominated all in the name of peace. They preached the name of Roman peace, Pax Romana, that they would build you roads, they would build up your economy, they would bring you wealth, they would bring you jobs, they would bring you everything that your, your town, your state, your, your part of their empire would need, and you would be successful and wealthy. That's what they preached when they went around. That's the way the conquest of Jerusalem went. 
They didn't invade and destroy Israel when, when Rome conquered it. No, they just walked into a power vacuum and said, hey, let us, let us fix things for you. And they installed a puppet king named Herod. And after that, Rome owned it. And there was nothing anybody could do to fight it. The only time Rome really lost territory was because of its own weakness. Now, don't get too fine detail with that. Yes, some other empires and nations took back territory, etc., etc. But for the most part, Rome was unstoppable in the way it ruled and in the way it expanded. And if you were not in line with how they think you needed to act, you were in trouble. And so what they would do is they'd go into all these cities especially once they became a proper empire with an emperor. This only happened in the 40s, about 40 years before the birth of Christ. Julius Caesar, he did his thing. And when that happened, they started the cult of the emperor under probably Augustus or Octavian, one of the two. Um, and they, they started setting up these temples to the emperors where they typically were viewed as favored by the gods. They weren't considered to be gods themselves. A few of the crazy ones claimed it, but for the most part, they claimed to be favored by the gods and therefore to be worshipped amongst the gods. But it was really just a tool for political control. And if you're a city within the Roman Empire and you want this Roman peace... The leading members of that city, what do they do? What do they do if they want Rome to prosper them? And Rome very much could. We looked at it throughout. They would give cities certain statuses and certain privileges, and those cities would grow, and they would do really well. Like Rome could back it up in some senses. What would those leading people of those cities do? They would do everything they could to make the emperor happy. They would do everything they could to get this cult of the emperor established in their city. They wanted to build the biggest temples. They wanted to build the biggest shrines, the biggest statues to these emperors. And so that's what we see when we, 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 these, these people living in the first century deal with, especially Christians who did not get in line, not because they were sub, sub, subverting the Roman government, but because they believed that there was only one God, and they believed that bowing down and worshiping a false god would compromise their faith. And so in every one of these cities, especially in western Turkey where Jesus and John are, are, are sending this revelation to, they would set up statues and they would say, hey, everybody had to come and they would put in their offering or they would light their candle or they would make kiss the ring or they would bow down to the statue or they would do something to symbolize that they were getting in line with this emperor worship so that the leading men of the city could keep favor with the Roman Empire and grow their own wealth. And Christians refused. And these leading people would do things like try to prove that the emperor was divine. And they would do things like put on great shows where the statues would speak, where they would call down fire. We have documented evidence of this happening to show that the emperor really was favored by the gods. So when we read about the second beast, and how it was able to do these things, and it was constantly forcing others to worship the image of the beast. 
and marking people as having worshipped the beast. And they would receive their mark and they would be able to buy and sell. That lines up exactly with what happened in the first century. To the letter. And so you see the second beast, the second monster. That's all those people who are pushing the Roman Empire on these first century Christians. And then we get to the very end. And it says, this calls for wisdom. This is John trying to get people to realize, don't just skip over this. He is sending a coded message because the book of Revelation at its core was very subversive. It was saying that, hey, the empire is going to be destroyed and that there's a new king who is going to take its place, and that is King Jesus. These are words to be killed over. You were caught with the book of Revelation, you were done. And so John, in certain ways, used subtle things to try to cover that up a little bit. And this is one of them. And in their culture and in their time, numbers were really, really important. Numerology, uh, the, using different numbers for different different things, geometria, like they, they, they were really big on this. And so that gets us to... 666. What is that number? What does it mean? Is it the number of the Antichrist? Well, on one hand, the beast is the Antichrist, right? Empire is anti-Jesus. That's what that word means. We see in Peter and we see in Paul and we see in John that there are many Antichrists and many have come. He's different from the son of lawlessness that Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians. That is the Antichrist, if you want to call him that. And so his empire and all these many beasts... Yeah, yeah, those are those are antichrists, 100%, no, no, no doubt. But is this the number of the antichrist, the Messiah? I don't think that number really exists. I think what John is doing here is he is filling in his readers about the identity of the current antichrist. Because there are many who have gone out in the world. Those who reject Christ, those who work against Christ, those are antichrists. We saw that in John's letters over and over. Who is the Antichrist? Who is the number? Who is this man? Because it does say it's the number of a human being. It's not the number of man. It is the number of a human being. Go back and read your Bible. You probably missed that because you probably thought, oh, it's just the number of man. It's 660. Like, no, it's the number of a person. It's somebody's name is what it is. And so if you go and you, you do the research, I did not do the research. I read the commentaries of people who did do the research. Just laying my cards on the table. The famous Roman Empire emperor at the time whose name lines up, if you spell out the letters with the numbers, you line it up, it's Nero. Nero was the emperor who first persecuted Christians. He was the one who, in the 60s AD, went a little nuts. A lot of people believe he set Rome on fire, but regardless, there was objectively... A large fire that burned a third of the city of Rome. And in order to blame somebody and take the heat off of him, no pun intended, he blamed Christians. And within the city of Rome, Christianity was illegal for a short time. Christians were hunted down, either forced to convert or they were executed. Nero is documented as having garden parties where he would crucify Christians and light them on fire for lighting. 
And the other thing was Nero was rumored to have been secretly surviving, right? So at the time of this writing, it's either written during Nero's reign or it is written during Nero's reign and then updated during Diocletian's reign at the end of the first century. Either way, the rumors were abounding that Nero was actually still alive. We see this in a lot of documents, that Nero was rumored to still be alive. He killed himself, but at the time of this writing, the rumors persisted that he was still alive. And so it lines up with the whole, the horn that was killed, right? The head that was dead but came back alive. It had a mortal wound, but it survived it. That lines up with Nero's story. That lines up with what the rumors were about Nero. And so when you add up Nero's name, it comes to 666, and the rumors were abounding that, hey, he was killed, but he come back to life. He never came back out if he did, but we still see these same kind of rumors today. Uh, if you go to any of the church's soundboards, um, you'll see on there a, a channel strip labeled Elvis. Because I was taught that you always got to have a mic ready for Elvis just in case he shows up because he's still out there kicking. <laughs> right? That, that JFK didn't really die. Or, you know, you see all these crazy things that go around. The rumors, the, the, they happened back then too. It's nothing new. But we see here a message in Romans 13, or Revelation 13, that, that lines up perfectly with the people who are suffering because of empire. We see how empire can be destructive and corrosive and stand for everything opposite of what Jesus stands for. And we see how the devil is using empire, is using nation against nation, of nations eating their neighbors, of eating people they attack. Not literally, but they're eating their resources, they're murdering, they're killing them, they're enslaving them. We see how that is so clearly a tool of the devil. Because when you look at what creation is going to be in, in Revelation 21, when we get there, we'll see that the heaven and earth combine and there's no longer any need for empire. Because there's no need for nations to rise up against nations because there's no need. People have all they need on every level, not just physical needs, emotional needs, spiritual needs. We see that empire doesn't exist beyond Judgment Day. And it's very, very clearly a tool of the devil. And so I hope this was enlightening to you. I hope this lets you understand the way the world around us is working. And when we see these wars, that when we see these nations needlessly attacking each other, like we see in Europe right now, that's the devil. That's the enemy seeking to destroy humanity just to ruin God's creation. If you have any questions, reach out. Otherwise, see you next week.